Okay, we're going to begin with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for Christian fellowship, for redemption, for atonement, for what for the word of God that doesn't change. Thank you for our opportunity to study um, your apostle Paul's teaching on Mars Hill. May we learn what's revealed here. And we pray for Eric that you'd be with him as he preaches the word to us this morning. We thank you, Lord, in Jesus' name. Amen. Okay, today, Acts 17. And this is amazing material. Let me set the stage here. Is it working for you? Oh, okay. How about now? All right, let's try that. All right. Um, no, nothing? I'm not, I'm not in that? All right, I can turn it up. How's that? Need more? It's pretty loud, okay. <laughs> All right, we'll just go with this. We got, a, we got a recording going, it's bouncing there, and I think there's sound up coming through. All right, this is what's amazing. If you just want to put this in context, can you think of the significance of a Jewish teacher, um, a, a guy who threatened the church, was converted, Acts 9. He ends up in Athens. He ends up where the philosophers, some of the, you know, the really amazing philosophers of that era of history are there, Stoics and Epicureans, plus all the polytheism. And he's there describing the true God who created the whole world out of nothing. I think it's great. So what I did, let's go to the verse 24, 5. We covered this, but today I did an overview. It's on your printout, and we'll get to it. And it has to do with what's revealed here and what topics are covered just in Paul's address. So he's speaking to these philosophers, and of course then ultimately, because this is in Scripture to everyone, about God, the Creator. Verses 24 and 25, Acts 17. The God who made the world and all things in it, since he is Lord of heaven and earth, does not dwell in temples made with hands. We covered that before. Nor is he served by human hands as though he needed anything. Since he himself gives to all people life and breath and all things. Now, in a previous Sunday school, I covered Isaiah 45. I think we did. Did we cover that? I didn't go back and listen to the audio. Let me quickly read it from the Lexham English Bible, Isaiah 45, 18 through 21. I'll give you time to turn there if you want to. Isaiah 45, 18 through 21. It says, this is... This is what the Lord who made the sky, this one is God who brought the earth 
to light. This is a translation out of the Septuagint and made it. He himself marked its boundary. He did not make it for nothing, but formed it to be inhabited, says, I am and there is no other. I have not spoken in secret or in a dark place of the earth. I did not say to the seed of Jacob, seek vanity. I am, I am the Lord who speaks righteousness and announces truth. Verse 20. Now, again, this is a translation of the Septuagint that Paul often cited in his writings. Gather together and come here, take counsel together. You have been delivered from among the nations. Those who lift up wood, they're in grave figure and pray to gods that do not save and do not know. If they announce, let them approach that they might know at once who made these things audible from the beginning. Then I will, then it will be announced to you, I am God and there is no other besides me and there is no righteous or savior besides me, unquote. Isaiah 45, 18 to 21, uh, Lexham English trans, uh, translation of the Septuagint. There may be a little bit of difference in your Bible, which would have come from the Masoretic text, but it's, it's basically the same idea. Okay? Well, isn't that amazing? And so here, what is given by special revelation through the prophet Isaiah are the same truths that Paul announces to pagan philosophers, Epicureans, and Stoics. And so what was declared in the Hebrew scriptures, now Paul puts out there in front of these people who were there in the midst of all these idols, and they were the philosophers, the Stoics, the Epicureans, who uh, weren't exactly the polytheists, but they were, how would you say it, polytheistic friendly. They doubted, they believed in living for pleasure, or whatever the those philosophies were, and I read that to you, oh, probably a month ago. So Paul preached earlier about the Creator in Acts fourteen, fifteen, where he said this: "Men, why are you doing these things? We are also men of the same nature as you, and preach the gospel to you, that you should turn from these vain things to a living God." who made, Acts 14, 15, the heaven and the earth and the sea that's all in all that's in them. Now, why did he say that? Because a miracle was done and these people wanted to offer sacrifices. So you got polytheists, philosophers, pagans, magicians, anything that was going on in the ancient world, Peter and then Paul, Barnabas, Silas, they're confronting this. And when they did, they preached grand truths from special revelation revealed in Scripture, not gleaned from philosophy, although you can find plenty uh, in the natural world to show you there's a God, Romans 1, enough to damn you, because everyone who saw anything suppressed the truth. 
Isn't that right? Romans 1, they express the truth and unrighteousness. But they're accountable. But now this very God who created the entire cosmos, who existed in eternity, notice my title, non-contingent, God doesn't need anybody or anything. The triune God of the Bible existed before anything else did. As we often say in apologetics, either something or someone eternal exists or what does exist came forth out of nothing. Out of nothing, nothing comes. Something exists. The something that exists is not eternal because we know that from the second law of thermodynamics. It would already have burned out and died of heat death. I have actually talked to some very brilliant people who aren't Christians and pointed that out, and they agree that that's true. But they're not Christian. Uh, the real reason people are not converted is a moral reason, not an intellectual one. Does that make sense? Anybody want to comment on that? Yeah, uh, Rich. Just a brief, just a brief comment question. Um, the, the very purpose, when you really think about it, what is the purpose of God in his creation? Why did he do it? Now, you just made a comment. You said he's perfectly content in fellowship with the triune right. God. In other words, you ask, a, you ask a regular person, even an evangelical, well, why did God create all this? And he says, well, for fellowship, he wanted fellowship. Fellowship with human beings, I suppose, is what they're really saying. And your refute would be, no, he doesn't need fellowship with human beings. He's already content in his Perfectly fellowship. self-sufficient. Self-sufficient. So then the question really begs to be asked, then truly, what is his motivation in creation? Well, all we can know about that is what's revealed in Scripture. Okay? And, Eric, you want to speak to that? You've, we've done apologetic seminars. Uh, I don't know if you've run across that question. Yeah, amen. I think Bob's right. The only thing we do know is what's revealed in Scripture. And one of the passages that seems to pull back the curtain and let us know some things is Romans 9, where God is glorified both in the vessels of honor and the vessels of dishonor, or those who have been prepared for destruction and those who have been prepared for salvation. And so what's interesting is God certainly would always be able to demonstrate his justice, and a lot of his attributes, but in creation and even in the rebellion of creation, he gets to show more of his glory in that he justifies wayward sinners to show his mercy. Right. And so um, that's not only the answer to why does he create, I think, at least partly, but also why does he tolerate evil and rebellion? And at the end of the day, he tolerates rebellion because he's able to show not just his justice, but also his mercy in the salvation of his people. So that's something I think Rome, that we see as Rome an answer. Nine, that's a good answer. Yeah, amen. But you know what's amazing, Eric? You know who doesn't like that answer? Christians. Yeah. <laughs> Honestly, the people that are the most angry yeah. about what is revealed are generally Christians. Isn't the redeemed ones a gift to the Son? That's true. Uh, but here... Let me give you something you can think about. I think it's probably the best answer. I heard it from some 
uh, apologetics person or I don't know who's the source of this. Maybe Eric knows. But here's one thing I heard. God allows evil. God uses evil. God overcomes evil for a greater good than would have been had evil ever existed. Have you anybody else heard that? Okay. We're not saying that God delights in evil, but he allows it. If you start in Genesis 1 and you go through what is revealed, the serpent shows up already, so there was a fall at some point. I would just say this. Let's just go by what's revealed and we'll be on safe ground. Go ahead. Uh, Well, you've given examples, Bob, of teachers that you've had, one in particular, can't remember his name, who were brilliant scholars, and then later on, they've completely removed themselves from they're God. They're atheists. Well, and that's they're, Eric. Yeah, Eric's and teacher. And, and they're atheists. So I, I believe your original question is, was why do these brilliant people who agree with the, the, the laws of uh, thermodynamics, why do they... Why do they not believe? And it's they love their sin. It's more. a moral. It's yeah. a moral question, and I think the doctrine of election is true. Okay, but it doesn't negate the universal call, and we know what's revealed, but we don't know what's not revealed. And one of the biggest problems is people aren't content with what's revealed. So when we've taught over the years the doctrine of Scripture. The inerrancy of Scripture, the sufficiency of Scripture, the authority of Scripture, the perspicuity of Scripture. I said that right. I'm having a good day. I normally take, take the safe route, the clarity of Scripture. Now, the point of it is that's what we know. And so Paul is telling these philosophers what's known from Scripture. But we also find that if we look at the facts everything scripture does say comports with the world we live in and I tell people that and I think it's a good apologetic and evangelistic approach what does the scripture say about human beings well we know that we're created in the image of God and we'll get to that in this section descended from one man Adam Eric talked about that last week We know there was a fall. So human beings are created in God's image and there was a fall and they're born dead in sin. So what do we see as we look at the world? Well, we see brilliance. We see creativity. It's amazing what people can do even in their fallen state. But even when good deeds are done, great works of art are done, architecture is amazing what people can build all the different things they can do but ultimately they refuse to acknowledge God and give him the glory and submit to what he has revealed that God who spoke in many ways in many portions has now in these last days Hebrews 1 1 through 3 I'm alluding to has spoken to us in his son through whom he created the entire universe 
And so the point is, God has revealed himself. He did send his son. We do have all the evidence we need to point to the fact that Jesus is the Savior. He really did live in history at the time the Bible says he lived. He really did live a sinless life. He really was born of a virgin. He really did die on the cross. He really was in the grave and rose on the third day. He really did appear to many witnesses. So we have special revelation. So why not believe it? Did anybody actually say they knew where the body was other than the people that lied and took money, the guards? No. Everybody agreed. Tomb's empty. So the problem isn't a lack of evidence. The problem is fall, the false. Sin, darkness, evil, hatred of truth, and everything else. So the real miracle is that God saves anyone. Now, over my 45, 50 years of ministry, the people who object the most to what's revealed, such as in Romans 9, are Christians who don't think it's fair. Let me ask you this. Does God have to appear fair to the mind of fallen man? No. No, God doesn't have to be fair. He's just. Yes. Bob, this is a little bit of a bunny trail, but, um, you know, as it refers to election and God's choosing, um, you know, we obviously have a abortion problem in this country around the world, um, as well as um, families who have stillborn children. Is there anything in Scripture that can give us any solace or is it not revealed about their condition in terms of salvation? We don't, we don't preach what we don't know. The Bible doesn't say. It doesn't say. God is loving and merciful. I'll, I'll tell you this that I do know from Scripture, that if you look at Revelation as you go to the end and everything comes to the conclusion of what's revealed now, there's rejoicing in heaven over God's glorious ways. Is that now right? And so when we know more than we know now, we'll be praising God. But what I tried to avoid is speculating about what I don't know. God is a loving, merciful God. And we, we, we have questions we don't know. And we don't want to make up doctrine for emotional reasons. Okay, and whenever people have done that in, over the centuries and millennia of church history, it doesn't turn out well. So I've had some tough situations, horrible situations in my many years of ministry. A single young lady that went to a, a church I was pastoring in the 80s, 90s, um, landed in a hospital from a suicide attempt. We went to, she wasn't even coming to our church anymore. I went and visited her there. And she got it better, a little better, got out. Two weeks later, she kills herself. And she hadn't been coming to our church and wherever, I don't know. So then I got called to come, go up to another city to do the funeral. And her parents were in a really goofy place. The church wasn't right. 
and people didn't know what to think, and uh, it was just horrible. But I remember way back in Bible college, one of my professors said, preach to the living. Don't go trying to explain things you don't know. How could a Christian do this? I don't know the heart. I don't know. I don't know. Oh, there's just too much I don't know. So I went up there, and the family really weren't knowing the truth of the gospel, and I just shared about Christ and love and mercy and redemption and forgiveness and hope in Christ. Preach to the living. Me speculating about, and you hear just the other things too that are, it doesn't comfort people to go to funerals and hear silly nonsense either. Uh, I think I mentioned that in a sermon. I, somebody dies that never went to church but liked to play golf and you get to the funeral. So-and-so's on the 18th tee, heading to the clubhouse. <laughs> <laughs> We don't need sentimentality. We need to know what's revealed. So in that regard, I want to get to these slides, but let me tell you something that's been helping me. I've already shared this, and I'm trying to hold my own feet to the fire on this. And at home, I jotted down some of the things. We're in a real troubled time right now. Some people have mentioned just going to the store, nothing's normal. You don't know who's going to be angry with you for just walking down the aisle or looking at this. You don't, you don't know what's going to happen. Everybody is just, it's really bad. And so how can we have the peace and love and hope and joy now, even though the world's shaking and falling apart? Believe what God has said Believe the promises of God. Don't go beyond what's written. Ask God to help you walk in the Spirit through the means of grace so that the fruit of the Spirit shows up. What is the fruit of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace. Long, I can't tell you the whole list. Kindness, long-suffering. Right? And so... If anybody has those things, shouldn't it be Christians? And I look around, where is it? Uh, Yeah, the armor of God is against the accuser. But people don't want that because they want to to go into the council meeting themselves and cast out Satan. So, Let's get back on track. The point is, this is revealed. What Paul told them is revealed. He didn't tell them what they wanted to hear. He didn't tell them blind sentimentality. He told them what is known, who God is. So let's see where this goes. And by the way, back in Isaiah... Isaiah, uh, jot this down. I'll read it. Isaiah 42, 5 and 6. Where Paul's going with this, he's basically covering truths that were in the Hebrew Scriptures in Isaiah 45. But this very God who made the sky, brought the earth to light, made it, marked its boundary. Look at what it says in Isaiah 42, 5 and 6. 
Thus saith the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and its offspring, who gives breath to people on it and spirit to those who walk on it. Isaiah 42, 6. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness, talking about Messiah, and will also hold you by the hand, watch over you, and appoint you as a covenant to the people, as a light to the nations. Isaiah talks about general revelation and the promise of Messiah. Isaiah 42. Messiah is given as a light to the nation. Paul's going to talk about that in this speech. And that's what they kind of got tired of listening to him. Now, I decided to make this little outline. And Christy was very uh, gracious because I got it to her late. But uh, we got it out anyhow. Because the idea came to me, I think, Thursday or somewhere. sometime. Why not take all of these things in this whole speech and lay them out what God reveals about himself, who he is, and who or what he is not. Okay, what do we know about God and what did he say to these philosophers on Mars Hill? It's still there, by the way. This is real history. I've been there. Has anybody else been to Greece or you have? Isn't it amazing? It's still there. And they bring you up on this, and they show you these pillars and stuff. Anyhow, he is what? Creator of the cosmos. Uh, Verse 24. He is Lord over the cosmos. He created. Verse 24. He's the giver of life and breath. Verse 25. He's the creator of the human race. Verse 26. He's the ruler over history. Verse 26. Boy, I have a ton of stuff on that. Um, that I've been working on that for a month, all the material on what it means that he draws out these boundaries. You know who doesn't like that? Christians. I, I don't get it. Why Christians don't like what the Bible says. Well, they can't be right. Well, that's what it says. What he, what's not true about God? Truths about God from Mars Hill. He does not dwell in handmade temples. Verse 24. I talked about that, made with hands. If you read made with hands in the Bible, it's usually referring to something bad. If you're trying to say so in reference to God, like idols. My people have forsaken me. Where do they go? Well, let's make our own God. Go back to the golden calf. If it's handmade, that's not a true representation of God. He does not need man to serve him. Verse 25. He doesn't need anything. That's what it says. Verse 25. He's not far from anyone. Omnipresence. Verse 27. He's not validly represented by idols. We'll get to that in verse 29. So that's what Paul said in his speech about who and what God is and is not. Isn't that amazing? Well, that would have been amazing to live at that time in history and hear that one. What a place and what a speech and what a crossroads that these people were facing. 
Now let's go to verse 26. Here is where we really learn a lot, amazing amount of material about God and the human race. Verse 26, the sovereign ruler of history. Very, very important. Paul said this, Acts 17, 26, and he, God, made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. So I looked up some of the Greek here, and I have here one of the words used, horizo. I have a bullet point on that. Uh, so my second bullet point, I point out that Luke's genealogy starts with Adam, Luke 3.38. Eric talked about that last week. The human race descended from Adam. Okay? Luke 3.38. So I looked up this word horizo, determine, it's as a verb, and it's used eight times in the New Testament. I printed out the entire list, so I'd have all of them. And it's pretty amazing how Luke uses it. Six of the eight times are in Luke-Acts. Luke had a very robust vocabulary from the Greek language. Some people, I mean, it really does fail with him being a physician, educated. He really could use the Greek language in an eloquent manner. And he used terms that are so important in describing God. It's all right here for us to learn. So jot these down. Maybe you have time to look at a few. I have them here so it's fast. It's just to read them. But I want to read the six from Luke X. Luke 22, 22. Luke 22, 22. Back in Luke. Jesus was talking about himself. For indeed, the Son of Man is going as it has been determined, but woe to that man by whom he is betrayed. Luke 22, 22. So Luke's first use of this was in Luke twenty two twenty two, where Jesus is talking about himself. That really gets to the heart of our earlier discussion about why God allows evil, why God created anything. And so it's determined by God's sovereign eternal purpose that his own son would be betrayed, the Lamb of God slain before the foundation of the world. And but woe to the man by whom he's betrayed. I don't have a slide for this, but it's, it's uh, listed at Luke twenty two twenty two. What do we learn? God allows evil. God uses evil. God judges evil. But in the end, there's a greater good. We see that, by the way, in our next reference that I'm going to cover. It's also in Joseph's address to his family. You meant this for evil, but God meant it to, for good. They save many people alive. So if we demand that God's fair, well, then we're just like the pagans, and we can demand fairness. We demand that God does things our way. 
But what's going to happen? We'll be judged like Judas. The better thing is to seek mercy and forgiveness. Yes, uh, brother. So just to kind of clarify what you just said. Okay, so the, the false Christian has a lot in common with Judas. Is that kind of what you're saying? In well, other, I'm not well, trying to... Right, I know what you're saying, but let's generalize here a little okay, bit. Okay, like, why, why do people get angry that God is in charge of his own creation? That's my question. And um, a lot of times it's Christians. Okay, because they want to get God off the hook for evilness? They think it seems more fair. Right. But it, we can't make God after our own intellectual capabilities. We need to know the God who's revealed himself. Right. But now, if we don't like that God, what we'll do is we'll create another God in our own image, when we like better, like Oprah Winfrey, or like any other Christian who yeah, says, I well, I don't like this God. I don't, that's not fair. No. So let's make a new God that fits our purposes. Right. Then we get the book, The Shack, and we get all these fun little novels that come, come by and, and uh, I know. Kinda, coincides with what I feel. It's my feelings, how I right. feel about these things. Right. Now, is Judas, is there a connection there to Judas with this? Woe to that man by whom he's betrayed in that context. I haven't looked up the verses around it. Well, just in the, go back into the Gospels. You have Peter and Judas. One of the common emails I get is from people say, I think I committed the unpardonable sin. I hear that, I mean, my whole Christian life. Because I wrote an article about uh, apostasy and Hebrews. And so one of the ways I respond is I have people just read about Judas and Peter. Peter denied Christ three times. But Peter was redeemed. He repented. Judas betrayed Christ, eventually went out and hung himself. So the people that asked me, I think it's hopeless, I think I said something before I was even a Christian, it's probably blasphemy of the Holy Spirit, so therefore now I can't be saved. I've heard people, I think I committed the unpardonable sin, so I can't be saved. And then they asked me what to do. I used to say this, well, let's talk about your pardonable sins. Well, I don't want to talk about that. See, they want to say, I'm trying to repent, but God's mean. He won't accept me because I said something wrong. Well, that's more like Judas. But some sincere Christians think they committed impardonable sin because they said something. I say, come to Christ. Believe the promises. The one who comes to me, Jesus said, I will in no wise cast out. I say to people, God can't be, who don't believe that God's sovereign over his own creation. Well, if you can't totally understand something, leave it at that until you can understand it, but don't tell God he's not doing things right. Respond to what we can know. Jesus said, come unto me, all you who are weary and heavy laden, and I will give you rest. What does rest mean in the Hebraic sense in the Old Testament. Forgiveness of sins? It's shalom. It's salvation. It's rest. You turn rest from 
labor and sin and alienation. But what did they say when he said that? Matthew, in Matthew, Matthew 11. Come unto me and I will give you rest. What's Matthew 12? Remember the chapter headings are artificial? Well, your disciples are breaking Sabbath. They wanted rest by law keeping. Jesus was offering rest by a relationship with himself. They didn't want that rest. They wanted to accuse Jesus of being a lawbreaker. Yes. This one verse refutes critical race theory and white supremacy. Yeah, nobody's supreme because of their race. I don't even know what this guy taught, but I was watching the news this morning. They had a guy on real early. He was, an older, he was older than me. Now, that's an old man. Maybe he just looked that way. But he says, well, they had him on because he was a pastor and his sermon was going to be on critical grace theory. <laughs> so I got my attention. I don't know what else he teaches, but I like that. And his critical grace theory was when Jesus was hanging on the cross, they were mocking him. They were scorning him. Everybody was insulting him. And he offers grace. Jesus Christ will save anyone who comes to him, whatever their race. If you trust in your genetics and race, that that can't save anybody. Eric talked about it last week. It's in Paul's statement. He made from one man every nation. Boil it down to its essence, there's only two things to concern yourselves with. In Adam all die, that's the one thing. The other, in Christ all are made alive. How do you end up in Adam? Born. How do you end up in Christ? Good, you got great answers. There's your critical grace theory. I, I don't know the name of the pastor, but I owe somebody else the idea. You don't like something about race, come to Christ, be born again, and you have eternal life, and it doesn't matter who you were, what you did, where you were, do you believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and trust him alone? So that's what Paul's dealing with. So he had Luke 22, 22. Acts 2, 23. Look at this one. Acts 2, 23. This one's critical. Talk about that term. This man, delivered over by the predetermined plan, has been determined, excuse me, predetermined plan and foreknowledge of God, you nailed to the cross by the hands of godless men and put him to death. There's our horizo. God allows evil. God uses evil. God overcomes evil for a greater good. What's the greater good? To save many people alive for eternity. Who are those who are going to be saved? Descendants of Adam. So they're indicted in Acts 2, but then the gospel's preached as X2 goes on, and there is our hope. So I would urge everyone who hears this, accept what the Bible says, 
believe what the Bible says. If there's something that's clear enough in the Bible, but you don't like it, well, then just, I would just not say anything until it starts to make sense. Or ask God for light or read some more. But don't reject a whole chunk of the Bible because you don't like it. Some people don't like premillennialism, so they come up with something else. Some others don't like the doctrine of election, so they come up with something else. It doesn't matter what we like. It only matters what God says. That's why I've been saying, and I'll keep saying, we have to get back the authority of Scripture and the priesthood of every believer. We're not hierarchy saying our group believes this because that's what we believe. You, you believe it or get out. We don't do that. Authority of Scripture. We've done this for a long time in class. Bring out the Scripture. Is there an answer? Maybe there's a better reading. My reading is Luke intended us to believe that God's in charge of his own universe by citing these things and writing them. And he's the Holy Spirit-inspired author. Therefore, God intended us to believe this. Is that right? Jesus was crucified by the foreknowledge of God, the predetermined plan, and it was done by the hands of wicked men, but God raised him from the dead as we went on. Acts 10.42, another one. He ordered us to preach to the people and solemnly to testify that this is the one who has been appointed, horizo, by God as judge of the living and the dead. Acts 10, 42. That was Peter, I believe, preaching there. <laughs> to God-fearers, household of Cornelius. You can look at the context. I'm going from memory. So Peter preached using the same word, horizo. Determined by God. God determined. Now, in Acts eleven twenty nine. it's just they determined to send a contribution. So there is predicated of some Christians. So it's used in a little different context, but that's the word. Acts seventeen twenty six is the one we're looking at here. And then the last time it's used in Luke Acts is in Acts seventeen thirty one. And here's what it says. And this is later in this same speech. Because he has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed, having furnished proof to all men by raising him from the dead. So just think of that. The entire human race he made from one man, the beginning of his speech, the end of his speech, Acts 17.31, he's appointed a man, the last Adam, and he fixed, uh, he fixed a day. He determined a day. There will be, now, this may be a complex event, but it will happen. Judgment is awaiting. And everybody is going to have to face it. And then they didn't give a very good response, but the point was, this is the truth, and it was preached there, but some did believe. He pointed a man to deal with what happened 
from the one man that every nation came from. Wow. So over the years, I've said to people, well, if you don't think it seems fair that God elected anyone, then um, I would suggest you repent, believe the gospel, trust in Christ, believe his promises, and I wouldn't teach on something you don't understand. Just trust Christ. Come to Christ. But some people have made it their mission to stomp out what God said. And I've heard about people that were my friends that spent time, actually years, and lots of fellowship, just ending up bitter, angry, nasty, won't go to any church because they don't want to believe this, whatever God said. Whatever is said is for our edification, for our comfort, it's for our hope. By the way, another couple of verses I can't get out of my mind. The fact that, that I can't get them out of my mind doesn't make them more important, but they are scripture. So I, I can talk to Eric about this. What was that, Romans 15, 4 and 5? Yes. Could you look that up and read it for us? I think I can do it. For, for whatever was written in former days was written for our instruction that through, the endurance, through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. Beautiful. Yeah. So that, that verse came into my mind. I've been meditating on it. I think it's profound. Is our hope in politics? No. Is our hope in man? Our hope is through the, the encouragement and edification of the scriptures. And that's why in 1983, I decided if I'm going to help anybody, I better start teaching the Bible. Because anything else is likely to be wrong and have to get corrected. And the scriptures, God doesn't change. His word doesn't change. His promises don't change. He said, I, the Lord, change not. And so through the edification and encouragement of the scriptures, we might have hope. And so let's be committed to believing the scriptures, teaching the scriptures, helping each other understand the scriptures, opening the scriptures, reading them, and having hope. And the hope is that on that ultimate fixed day, Acts 17, 31, when he will judge the world in righteousness, will be not pleading our right, our righteousness, but the righteousness of Christ, and then we will be declared saved, justified, glorified, and ultimately perfected by God through His mighty promises. I've been getting so many calls from people that I had heard from from decades, different people, and they're just shaken to the core. They don't know what to believe. They despair even of staying alive. They don't, they've been to this group and that group, and it fell apart, and this other thing, and that fell apart, and this other thing, and that fell apart. They knew me in the 70s. They don't know what to do, and I point them to Scripture. Romans 8. One fellow, I didn't have his email, I sent him scripture. 
read it, think about it. But people think, well, I got to go to some group and they have the angle that nobody else has and it's going to solve my problem. It won't work. The scriptures aren't only for some group. They're for the whole body of Christ. Through the encouragement and admonition of the scriptures, we might have hope. So there's my latest verse stuck in my brain. Romans 15, 4 and 5. Now what about these times and boundaries? Wow, look at that. Having determined their appointed times and boundaries of their habitation. How can that be when the actual boundaries exist because of intrigue, wars, uh, coups, um, revolts, despots, all sorts of things happen. Empires arise, fall. The Roman Empire that Paul was in, uh, no one's sure when it ended. Supposedly the church took it over. And as one of my teachers said, the Holy Roman Empire was neither Holy Roman or an empire. So talk about misnaming something. But how all this works is determined by God, according to Paul speaking here. Now, we don't have time for it, but notice I mentioned Daniel 2, 36 through 45. We've talked about it many times. It was Daniel's who was able to interpret, not only interpret the king's dream, but tell him what it was and then interpret it. And his, all his uh, soothsayers couldn't do it. And they knew they were doomed. But Daniel knew God. And so he talked about those kingdoms and their times. Now, turn, let's turn to this one. Luke 21, 24. I want to look at this kairos, times. That's the word there in the Greek, pointed times. Now, there's always a little bit of overlap when we come to range of meaning. Generally, chronos means chronological time, and kairos means qualitative time. Here it's kairos. Now, that was also used in Luke 21, 24. And they will fall by the edge of the sword and will be led captive into all the nations and Jerusalem will be trampled underfoot by the Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. Times there, Kairos, using a similar way qualitative. So what exactly does the times of the Gentiles denote? Eric, you're the prophecy teacher. You don't, just, you don't need your readers. Just tell us the answer. You know, during the church age, the predominant people that are going to be saved are Gentiles, although there are some Jews who are going to be saved. And the Gentiles will be the focus of God's salvation until the 70th week of Daniel there's going to be a reversal where God turns his attention towards Israel and mm-hmm. all Israel will be saved as we see in Romans 11:26. so right now we're living in an interesting dispensation between the 69th week of Daniel 
in the 70th week of Daniel. So remember, the whole 70 weeks prophecy was about Israel, but we're living in that parentheses, the time of the Gentiles. Right, but, but it's a significant time. It is, exactly right. Okay, so from the coming of Messiah to the beginning of Daniel's 70th week is the times of the Gentiles. We don't know how long that goes. So that was Luke 21, 24. Why did he do this? He did this, 1727, so they might seek God and perhaps they might reach out and find him, though he's not far from each one of us. For in him we move and exist, even as some of your own poets have said, for we are also his offspring. Now, they didn't have divine revelation, but they got an idea that God was the reason humans existed. Now, this is a citation of Aratus' poem, and uh, however, the Phenomen, Phenoma, first, third century BC, and the word genos, offspring, is used there. But Paul is thinking of the one man he mentioned. In verse 26. So if you look at the Greek, verse 27 here in the Greek would indicate that they're feeling around looking, but it's kind of blind and uncertain. The word means they're feeling around to see if he's there somewhere. Well, he's not far from us. The fool has said in his heart, there is no God. The fear of God is being in wisdom. And so they're they don't know, but they're, they're, they believe that somehow they were offspring. So the Greek shows the uncertainty because those with no special revelation are groping around in the dark. Does anybody believe that's literally true? Did you used to grope around in the dark? I did. Until the light of the gospel brings light, we're all groping in the dark. Any comments on that? Rich. I just think a lot of people aren't groping. They just don't care. They, they, don't, they don't know God. They don't care about God. If you share with them, they're like, whatever. As a matter of fact, when I was talking to someone who acknowledged the reality of entropy and that the universe would have died of heat death if it were eternal, that the universe had to have a beginning, but doesn't want to believe. The answer, and a lot of people just say it, is, is nihilism. Does anybody know the definition of nihilism? It's yeah, basically, life is meaningless and absurd, so get used to it. They had a saying about that when I was a teenager, but I won't repeat it. It's not very nice. But basically, you're going to die, party, it all means nothing. That's nihilism. All of life is an absurdity, so don't waste your time trying to figure it out. 
But Paul isn't telling people to grope around in the dark. He's going to reveal the true way to know light so that you're no longer groping in the dark. They use that, by the way, offspring here is their word from that poem, Gainos. Being God's offspring then, we shouldn't, Paul said, think that the divine nature is like gold or silver or stone, an image fashioned by human art and imagination. Interesting words. So he takes one of their poets, cites their word, brings it up, and says, don't think like that. Where is he standing? On Mars Hill. What's on Mars Hill? Every idol you can imagine. Oh, great accomplishments. Honestly, it is. It's amazing that they can build something you can still go and see. How could that be? It's amazing what fallen humans, though created in the image of God, can do. Great accomplishments. They would have done even more, but God wouldn't let them finish the Tower of Babel, would he? And he scattered them and put them under these boundaries. Now, don't let it bother you, by the way, that the boundaries happen for various political reasons throughout all of history, because there are primary and secondary causes. That there are nations is true because of the table of nations back in Genesis. God thwarted Babel, confounded their language, and now we got nations. But out of that, he chose Abram, and then his descendants, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Joseph. Then you have David and Messiah and so on. You can look at, at that. But the nations still exist to this very day. And as we've been teaching here for, for a long time, people aren't happy with that. Why are they not happy that there are nations? Because they don't know why, but they want Babel back. They never gave up. We still want to reach the gods. And so we got to get rid of all these boundaries. It won't happen until God allows it to happen. And Eric and I teach that doesn't happen until after the rapture. The boundaries are going to be around. They may change, but they're going to still be there until after the rapture. And Antichrist is revealed. So art and imagination, I've got to be done here. Let me look at here. Art, interesting word, techne, techne, which would give you sort of the root of what eventually becomes our word technology. And imagination, enthumice, means thought or device or contrivance. So the divine nature can't be reproduced by technology or stated by human imagination. Yes. Uh, Wouldn't this be the Roman Catholic's wafer also? <laughs> they bow to it, they pray to it, they say that we're here visiting Jesus on a certain day of again, adoration. That's not what's revealed in Scripture. So, yes, human contrivance. 
Well, Rome is not to be outdone by Athens. They, look at all the, the idols. I haven't been to the Vatican, and I'm not going to spend money to get there. <laughs> but some people go there and come back and say, well, it's all true. Rome must be the real church because I saw it. But Paul said, no, you can't. Because you have a grand cathedral and all this stuff doesn't make it right. Doesn't make it true. God isn't represented by images, technology, contrivances, thoughts, devices. And I want to end with this verse, Isaiah 42, 17. We've already looked at Isaiah 45, Isaiah 42. And, And it says this, they are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols and who say to metal images, you are our gods. No. Forget all this stuff. Scripture alone, Christ alone, grace alone, faith alone, the glory of God alone, the five solas. Let's close with prayer. Thank you, Lord, for your goodness and kindness and allow for allowing us to look in to these glorious truths and to see what your apostle preached to the pagans in Athens. And we pray for Eric that you be with him as he preaches the word to us today in Jesus' name. Amen.